Hello. Before we start this, I wanted to give you an update. The episode you're about to hear was released in 2016 as one of the very first episodes of Based on a True Story. I never could have imagined this would happen when I recorded this episode at first, but I've just had a chat with the producer of the official Bletchley Park podcast, Mark Cotton. He explained that there's a lot of myths around Bletchley Park and was kind enough to take the time to fact check this episode. So we'll carry on about this episode as usual, and then if you stay to the end, you'll hear my conversation with Mark where he points out some of the mistakes I made in the episode, as well as some of the points that just need some more clarification. Okay, and now, on with the show. In the 1930s, Hitler's Nazi regime came to power in Germany. As the years passed, the military might of Germany shocked most of Europe with technological marvels they'd never seen before. German troops were on the move almost daily, keeping tensions high as the whole of Europe watched on, helpless to stop Germany's military might. The British Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, made a last-ditch effort to slow down the Nazis' aggression while avoiding war when he met with Hitler in Munich on September 30, 1938. But no one expected this to work. A war seemed inevitable, and with the Nazis' military power, no one knew what the outcome would be. The only thing they knew was it would be the worst war humankind had ever seen. The British government knew they'd need to take an innovative approach to winning this war. Little did they know that Britain's eventual victory could be largely attributed to one man, Alan Turing. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. In 2014's The Imitation Game tells the story of Alan Turing, who is played by Benedict Cumberbatch in the movie. Turing was born on June 23, 1912, in London, England, to an upper-middle-class family. He started school at the age of six, and right away, his teachers knew there was something different about him. As he grew, so did Turing's love for school. In 1926, Turing's first day of school at Sherborne in Dorset happened to coincide with the 1926 General Strike, an event where over 1.7 million workers went on strike. So, determined not to miss his first day, Turing rode his bicycle from his home in Southampton over 60 miles away by himself just to make sure he'd get to school on time. Only 15 years old, Turing found the work of Albert Einstein and for the first time was able to develop Einstein's work, coming to conclusions from Einstein's work that Einstein himself never made clear in the work. Despite his brilliant mind, many of Turing's professors didn't like how utterly focused Turing was on math and science. In Andrew Hodge's book entitled Alan Turing, The Enigma, he quotes one of the letters that Turing's teachers sent to his parents. I hope he will not fall between two stools. If he is to stay at public school, he must aim at becoming educated. If he is to be solely a scientific specialist, he is wasting his time at a public school. 
Well, in school in Sherborne, which is on the southern coast of England, Turing drew a ton of inspiration from many of the greatest mathematicians of the time, names like Sir Arthur Eddington, John von Neumann, Max Neumann, and Bertrand Russell. At Sherborne, Turing became close friends with a boy named Christopher Morcom. The two struck up quite a friendship, and many historians today refer to Morcom as Turing's first love. The two decided to apply to King's College together. Unfortunately, Morcom contracted tuberculosis in February of 1930 after drinking some infected cow's milk. He died suddenly, leaving Turing stricken with grief. In the imitation game, Benedict Cumberbatch plays Turing as a very shy, socially awkward person. And this is actually quite true. Although he impressed everyone around him with his brilliance, Turing didn't have many friends. So when Morcom died, Turing threw himself into the only thing he could, his studies. In 1931, Turing learned of the decision problem by German mathematician David Hilbert. The problem essentially was that mathematics of the day were prone to paradoxes and inconsistencies. So Hilbert proposed a solution to this, securing a foundation for all mathematics. Later, the same year, another German mathematician by the name of Kurt Gödel published a paper which proved two key things for any computable axiomatic system that's powerful enough to describe arithmetic. First, if the system is consistent, it can't be complete. Secondly, the consistency of any reasoning can't be proven in the system. This fascinated Turing. By the age of 23, Turing joined the fellowship at King's College. While being a fellow really just means he was a member of a group, the fellowship at King's College has a long-standing tradition of recognizing the extraordinary. Some even consider it to be the highest award King's can give to an individual. Between being named a fellow at King's College and before his next step, Turing spent almost a year on Hilbert's decision problem. His solution was something that would change modern computing forever. The Turing machine. The Turing machine was more of a theoretical machine in that it was never intended to be built. However, the importance lay in the fact that it could be implemented. Otherwise, it would just be science fiction. Essentially, a Turing machine has tables of programmed behavior that's complex enough to read the tables of other Turing machines. Then the first Turing machine would be able to do what another Turing machine could do. It's a bit of an abstract concept, but it's an important one because it's essentially the same concept that's the backbone of today's computers. So if you have the Turing machine, think of it sort of like a computer program. You'd need a computer to run on it. This is what Turing called a universal machine. The correlation between these two is like the correlation between today's computer hardware and the software that runs on it. Let's say you have Microsoft Word on your computer. You want to be able to edit a photo, but Word can't really do that. However, what you can do is install Photoshop to edit your photo and then put that photo into Word. All of this is happening on a single device, your computer. While this seems simple in today's computing world to have software talk to each other and all of it working on a computer, you have to remember that in 1936, computers like we have today simply didn't exist. Although it garnered the name machine, think of the Turing machine more like a modern-day software program. 
uh, universal machine could run an infinite number of subset machines that could essentially talk to each other to accomplish whatever you needed. So in today's context, your computer would be like the universal machine, and it can have multiple subsets of machines or software installed to do what you want. In this way, Turing concluded that if anything is computable, it can be computed by this one machine, a universal Turing machine. He presented this work to Max Newman in April of 1936, and this opened up a whole new world of thought. As it happened, a mathematician at Princeton named Alonzo Church had been working on similar solutions, and so it was that, after graduating from King's College with a special distinction, Turing left England for the United States, where he attended Princeton University to study mathematics further under Church. Just to add some context to this, Turing started studying at Princeton in September of 1936. Less than two years later, in June of 1938, he got a PhD from Princeton with a dissertation entitled Systems of Logic Based on Ordinals, where he introduced the concept of ordinal logic and the idea of relative computing. After graduating from Princeton, he returned to England where he was almost immediately recruited by the Government Codes and Ciphers School. On September 3rd, 1939, England declared war on Germany. The next day, Turing arrived at Bletchley Park to start working on his machine for a new purpose, as a device for decrypting the messages sent by Germans using their Enigma machines. In the imitation game, Benedict Cumberbatch's version of Turing names his machine Christopher after his first love. In reality, this machine was referred to as a bomb. It was later renamed Victory, but it was called Bomb because it was based on an earlier decryption device the Polish built, and they called that device uh, Bama Kryplogiczna. That's Polish, and I'm sure I butchered that because I don't speak Polish, but that's Polish basically for cryptologic bomb, and they actually had some success in cracking the Enigma cipher. The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. The Polish, certainly knowing that their time was limited even early on in the war, sent as much as they could to help British intelligence. They sent Enigma machines they had captured and the basic frameworks for their own bomb machines. These were critical to helping Turing and his team. Then, in 1939, Germany invaded Poland. 
From here, it would seem British intelligence was on its own. Why is the German enigma so important to break? Well, the movie did a good job of explaining the importance, but let's break it down. As the Nazis started to expand their empire across Europe, they knew one of the keys to success was being able to keep their plans away from the enemy. To do this, their scientists built an incredible piece of technology. The German Enigma machines were used to create a cipher or a code that could only be read by another Enigma machine using a special decryption key. And that key was changed frequently. Think of it sort of like having two-factor authentication today. With today's two-factor authentication, you have your normal username and password, but then when you log into a website, it'll ask you for a unique code. That code is generated with a second device, usually your smartphone. And this code changes, usually every 30 seconds. The end result is basically you need to have your phone handy to be able to log in. That's what makes it next to impossible for someone to get into your account without your phone. Well, the Enigma machine obviously didn't run from a smartphone and didn't refresh every 30 seconds. The basic concept was similar. Having access to an Enigma machine itself isn't any good if you don't know the decryption code. And the Germans randomly changed the code. So to break the Enigma code, you needed the machine, of course, but you also needed to know what the random code is. Simply put, it was next to impossible to hack an Enigma machine. The Nazis knew this, and because they knew this, they used Enigma to transmit all sorts of top-secret information. On the flip side, if the British intelligence could crack Enigma, all of a sudden, every German surprise attack on land and sea, not to mention countless of other surprises that the Germans threw at the Allies, would no longer be secret. They'd no longer be surprises. In 1938, as the Nazis were just starting their bloody trail across Europe, British intelligence set up Bletchley Park and gathered all of the brightest minds with the sole purpose of decrypting German ciphers, most predominantly the Enigma cipher. Bletchley Park is located in southeastern England, and they actually have a working version of a bomb machine. If you get a chance to visit, I'd highly recommend it, but they have some great videos on YouTube that explain how the bomb works, if you're interested. In the imitation game, they emphasize the tension between Turing and his military supervisors as England's position in the war grew increasingly dire and Turing's machine had yet to break the Enigma code. While the basics of this are correct, in truth, the Enigma had to be broken more than once. This was because the German army and air force used a different Enigma system than the navy. In fact, the Polish bomb made significant headway into breaking the Enigma ciphers for the German army and air force. Turing and his team may have based their work on the Polish bomb, but they made significant improvements to it. And on March 18, 1940, the first bomb was installed at Bletchley Park. To give a sense of scale for these machines, each bomb was about seven feet wide, six and a half feet tall, two feet deep, and weighed one ton. They were primarily two things that the British bomb needed to be successful in breaking an Enigma-encrypted message. First, they needed to know the Enigma hardware itself. Capturing the Enigma hardware became a priority for the Allies, and that actually spawned a lot of movies on its own, such as U-571. The other thing they needed for the bomb to be able to break the encryption was to be able to guess at least 20 letters from the text. That's where, in the movie, they were able to break the code because of guessing the words Heil Hitler and weather were in the encryption. 
Well, not always from weather reports. The German use of Heil Hitler in their communications did make for this to be a common method of breaking the code. Unlike in the movie where they make it seem like Turing himself built the machine, the first bomb was actually built by the British Tabulating Machine Company at Letchworth, about 30 miles from Bletchley Park. Another differentiator from the movie in real life came when, in the movie, Turing went directly to Winston Churchill for funding his first bomb. That's not quite how it happened. Although, the cost of £100,000 mentioned in the movie was correct. That's about $6.5 million in today's U.S. dollars. Despite the success of breaking the ciphers using the expensive but effective bomb machine, there was simply too much for their limited team to handle. Imagine, if you will, that you have a single computer trying to monitor the traffic of an entire world war. Even with the computing power of today's modern-day systems, that would be quite a difficult task. Not only that, but even though Turing's team was able to crack the German code, it wasn't like they knew which communications were which before decrypting them. So one message might be something as simple as the weather. Another one might be something important. There's no way to really tell before it's decrypted, at which point you've already spent the time to decrypt it. So it's completely understandable when Turing and his team started to get frustrated, they felt as if their work just wasn't enough. Despite this feeling, they were making quite a huge difference and had significantly decreased the amount of losses the English suffered. On August 8, 1940, a second bomb was installed, but it still wasn't enough to turn the tide of the war. Growing increasingly fed up with the lack of response as he was trying to get more people and funding for more bombs to help decrypt everything that was coming through, that's when Turing wrote a letter directly to Churchill. Andrew Hodge's biography of Turing that we mentioned earlier has the text of the reply that came from Churchill. It was written to General Hastings Ismay, who was Churchill's chief military assistant. Action this day. Make sure they have all they want on extreme priority and report to me that this has been done. Churchill's response was like magic. All of a sudden, Turing had whatever he needed. By the end of the war, over 200 bombs were in operation. With very accurate results, the British bombs were able to break the encryption for the Army and Air Force Enigma machines because they used three rotors. The German Navy, however, had more rotors on their Enigma machines, so this made it a lot more difficult. Throughout the war, Germany kept changing their Enigma machines, another reason why the Allies had to keep capturing updated Enigma hardware. But the Navy's rotors started with twice as many as the Army and Air Force at six, then it was updated to have seven, and finally, by the end of the war, there were eight rotors. At the end of 1939, Turing had solved the additional complexity for the Navy's Enigma, at least in theory. Taking this theory to practice would prove to be more difficult. To test his theories, Turing invented a new method of ruling out certain sequences of the Enigma rotors. This significantly decreased how long it took to test the bomb machine settings and, by extension, got them up and running much faster. In the imitation game, playing the role of Joan Clark is Kiera Knightley. In the movie, Clark worked in Hut 3 along with the other women, but in truth, Clark worked in Hut 8 alongside Turing. The two formed a great friendship, as they did in the movie. In the movie, Knightley's character complains that her parents are pressuring her to get married. Since homosexuality for men, but not women, was illegal at the time, the arrangement in the movie makes sense. 
Well, there's no proof of this being the rationale. We know that Clark introduced Turing to her family shortly after Turing proposed to her in 1941. The engagement was short-lived, though, when Turing admitted his homosexuality to Clark, and while Clark didn't really seem to care, she's being reported as being unfazed by it. It was ultimately Turing who decided to break off the engagement. After years of working on breaking the German Navy's more complex enigma, Turing finally broke it in 1942. Although the British had been in war for years now, they had a new ally across the ocean in the United States who joined the war after Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. As part of intelligence sharing between England and their new allies, Turing traveled to the U.S. where he helped the U.S. Navy build American bombs. While in the U.S., he visited Washington as well as the U.S. Navy's lab in Dayton, Ohio. Although he wasn't too fond of the way the Americans were building their bombs, saying they relied too much on machinery instead of thought, he shared what he knew about the German Enigma machines with the Americans. In exchange, he was given access to the encryption system being set up for private conversations between Churchill and Roosevelt. He was essentially Churchill's verification that the system would be secure. Turing returned to Bletchley Park in 1943, where he continued with decryption efforts. On September 2, 1945, the Japanese signed an unconditional surrender, ending World War II. Just like in the imitation game, keeping the work at Bletchley Park secret was of utmost importance. Because of this, it wasn't until a British Royal Air Force officer by the name of F.W. Winterbotham published his book, The Ultra Secret, that the public really started to understand the work that went on there. Although he couldn't use, or even talk about, the work he'd done at Bletchley Park, after the war, Turing left the British intelligence and went to work at the National Physical Laboratory, or NPL, in London, where he started working on a machine that would rival everything he'd built so far. In 1946, Alan Turing finished a proposal for an electronic digital stored program computing machine called the Automatic Computing Engine, or ACE. While a great theory, NPL was skeptical that it could work and quite simply didn't have the resources to build the machine even if it did. Because of the secrecy of Bletchley Park, Turing couldn't explain that he knew the machine would work. So the machine would stay a theory until a pilot version was built by NPL well after he left in 1950. Perhaps one of the most popular reasons why someone would recognize the name of Turing comes from something that happened in 1949 when Turing was the deputy director of the computer lab at Manchester University. He was working on artificial intelligence and proposed an experiment that would later become known as the Turing test. Even now, the Turing test is given to determine whether or not an artificial intelligence is indistinguishable from a human. As part of the test, Turing built a chess program for a computer that didn't even exist yet. In 1952, and without a computer powerful enough to actually run the test, Turing played a game of chess with his colleague where Turing simulated the role of the computer following the rules of the program. His program ended up going 50-50 when he lost to his colleague, Alec Glennie, but won the game against a former colleague's wife. Throughout the entire movie, The Imitation Game, is a plot threaded in where someone breaks into Turing's house and steals nothing, and the detective, played by Rory Kinnear in the movie, is trying to get to the bottom of it. Although the detective Kinnear plays is purely fictional, the basis for these events happened when Turing met Arnold Murray. 
Murray was a 19-year-old unemployed man at the time and met Turing outside the cinema just before Christmas at the end of 1951. The two saw each other periodically until, on January 23, 1952, Turing's house was broken into. Murray admitted the burglar was an accomplice of his, and Turing reported the break-in to the police. During the ensuing investigation, Turing admitted a sexual relationship with Murray, something that was illegal at the time. Both Murray and Turing were charged with gross indecency. At the initial proceedings, held about a month later, Turing took the advice of his brother and legal counsel and pled guilty. On March 31, 1952, Turing went to trial and was convicted. He was given a choice between one of two things. Either he could go to prison or he could go on probation on the condition that he undergo a treatment intended to cure him of his homosexuality. He accepted probation and the treatment, saying, quote, No doubt I shall emerge from it all a different man, but quite who I've not found out, end quote. For the next year, he was injected with DES, a treatment that not only caused Turing to be impotent, but also caused gynecomastia. As a result of the trial and conviction, Turing was stripped of his security clearance and barred from any cryptographic consulting. He was allowed to keep his academic job, but the U.S. denied him entry in 1952 when he tried to go there. On June 8, 1954, Turing's housekeeper arrived early in the morning to find his body. Turing had committed suicide the previous day, killing himself with cyanide. A half-eaten apple was found by his bed, and many assumed this was the method he used to kill himself. Four days later, on June 12th, Turing followed in his father's footsteps when his body was cremated and his ashes were scattered at the Woking Crematorium. Four years after Turing's death, building on the pilot, ACE they had constructed from Turing's design in 1950, the full-scale automatic computing machine that Turing had drawn up at the National Physical Laboratory was built in 1958, ushering in a new age of digital computing. Following Turing's sad ending, a lot of theories popped up surrounding his death. Some guessed that because of Turing's involvement with cryptography and because of growing tensions around the world following World War II, maybe he didn't commit suicide but he was assassinated. There's never been anything to prove this, though. Some think his death was accidental. The most compelling of these being a theory that Turing accidentally inhaled cyanide from a gold electroplating apparatus, which uses potassium cyanide to dissolve gold that was in his room. But again, this has never been proven. The apple wasn't really anything unique, as Turing would often eat an apple before bed, sometimes not making it through the whole apple before dozing off. For a while, some even speculated that Apple's logo with the bite taken out of it was in honor of Turing. This was repeatedly denied by Steve Jobs, though. Another theory posed by some of Turing's biographers is that Turing was reenacting a scene from his favorite Disney movie, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Turing, in particular, enjoyed the scene where the Wicked Queen used an apple laced with poison. So it's interesting that he was to die in a similar fashion. No matter the actual cause, no one can deny that a grave atrocity led to the downfall of the man who Winston Churchill credited as having made the single biggest contribution to Allied victory in the war against Nazi Germany. Alan Turing was literally tried and convicted for his homosexuality, something that almost undoubtedly had a significant effect on, if not being the sole cause for, his death. 
It wasn't until an internet petition started to put pressure on the British government when it received more than 30,000 signatures in August of 2009 that Prime Minister Gordon Brown finally released a statement. A portion of the official statement is as follows. Thousands of people have come together to demand justice for Alan Turing and recognition of the appalling way he was treated. While Turing was dealt with under the law of the time, and we can't put the clock back, his treatment was, of course, utterly unfair, and I am pleased to have the chance to say how deeply sorry I and we all are for what happened to him. So, on behalf of the British government and all those who live freely, thanks to Alan's work, I am very proud to say, we're sorry, you deserved so much better. On December 24th, 2013, Queen Elizabeth II officially signed a pardon for Turing's conviction of gross indecency, effective immediately. It was only the fourth royal pardon since the conclusion of World War II. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. If you want to learn more about the life of Alan Turing, Andrew Hodge's biography that we've mentioned throughout this episode, entitled Alan Turing, The Enigma, was not only the inspiration behind the imitation game movie, but also offers some great insights into the genius mathematician. Hello again, Dan from Present Day here. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, now it's time for some clarifications and corrections from someone working very closely with Bletchley Park, the producer of the Bletchley Park podcast, Mark Cotton. Before we get Mark on the line to go over those corrections, though, I do want to point out really quickly that Mark actually spent quite some time giving a ton of new insights into the true story on an all-new episode of Based on a True Story. You can find that as episode number 147 of Based on a True Story, so go check that out if you want to learn even more. Okay, now here is my conversation with Mark, where we fact-check this episode. For longtime listeners of the podcast, they might know that we covered the imitation game way back on episode number three. And as you might expect, over the years since that episode has been released, I've had various folks be kind enough to write in about that episode. Now, as is often the case with online comments, the nature of that feedback can vary quite a bit. I'll get one message that says they insist their version of the story is correct, and then another one will come in and they'll contradict that with yet another version of the story that they say is correct. Now, I really appreciate your help on this, Mark, because you took the time to review that original episode and do some fact-checking on that to see how accurate it really was. And you sent along some great comments. Some of them are things that I got wrong, and some of them are just things that need more clarification. So what I'd like to do is to walk through each of those, and I'll explain what I had said in the original episode, and then you can give us the correction or clarification, whatever it may be. Sound good? Yeah. Can I just say one thing before we do this? Yeah. And this this isn't even about Bletchley. This is about your podcast. That when I we first got in touch online, I thought, right, okay, I'm going to listen to this episode. And for a number three episode, I was so impressed how great that show sounded. I really was. It was that was what immediately attracted me to doing this because I thought, no, Dan really cares about what he's doing. 
and then the whole premise of the show, and then you know us doing this, you know, it, it just shows how much you care about this, and that you know that's that's what makes it so engaging. I appreciate that, and I have to admit, I was. It was episode number three, so I was a bit nervous about having you check it out. <laughs> you should be a lot prouder of your episode than num- number three than I am of any episode number three of anything I've done. I know that. <laughs> All right. But, you know, regardless, I do want to make sure that we fix some things that got wrong and, and clarify some things, just kind of set the record straight that we can. So uh, the first has to do simply with the name of the place that Turing was recruited by. I called it the Government Codes and Ciphers School. And even though uh, people listening to the audio version, I actually written it with an I, but that's not quite right. That's American and, and British, isn't it? Um, we, we, we have cipher, same language, separated by an ocean. Um, we, we spell it with a Y and it's, it's Government Code and Cipher School. Ciphered plural. So that's what you refer to when you say GC and CS, essentially. GC and CS, yeah, that's what it's basically known as up until the end of the war. And then that's what is now our GCHQ. Okay. Okay. And then shortly after that in the episode, there was a date that I got incorrect. And when you mentioned this, I was like, how did I, how did I get that wrong? I went back and listened to it. And actually, I, the, when I went back and listened to it, it was, Correct, but then I also know that there's been times where I've edited things and as needed to and and gone back. So there's probably different versions of that out there. So with that said, I want to make sure I get this right. I had said that England declared war on Germany on September 9th, 1939, which is not correct. Uh, But then that I said the very next day, Turing arrived at Bletchley Park. So what's the correct date? Um, well, I know how it's happened. Again, that's that's Britain and America because you you have your you you produce your dates a different way around. You put uh, the month first, don't you? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Which always confuses me, and that's where the nines come from from September. Um, so it's September the third. So so Germany invade Poland on the first. They're given an ultimatum, and at eleven o'clock on September the third, we we declare war. As I said earlier, we're not entirely sure the actual day that Turing turns up. We know it's within sort of the, the first two to three week period of September 1939. Okay, so early on in the war then, I mean, it would have been right there. Okay. Yeah. But as I said earlier, you know, I mean, they actually, the staff are given at this point, pre-war, they're based in London and they're given, they're issued a movement order at the very beginning of August 1939, and they're told that the Government Code and Cipher School will be moving on the 15th of August. So actually on the, the day war was declared, you know, it's not a case of everyone then gets a, a telegram. There was a kind of myth that said that everyone got this telegram saying that um, it went something along the lines of, Auntie Flo is not well. And that meant to everyone who got one that you had to arrive at Plexley Park. Well, bearing in mind that Bletchley Park is the, and I emphasise the word, secret war station of the secret intelligence service, uh, they're not going to know where Bletchley Park is and that they've got to go to Bletchley Park. What they more likely received was they would know that they'd get a telegram and they would just get a telegram saying, buy yourself a ticket to Bletchley Park and you'll be met at the station. And that's probably how it was done. A little more straightforward since you don't know where to go. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's, I think a lot of these myths have grown up. You know, one, through lack of actual documentation, and two, just gilding the lily a little to make it a bit more exciting, I think. Now, the next clarification is something I think we might have discovered or covered in our discussion, but I just want to make sure we get it right. In the original episode, I mentioned that the bomb was a computer, and that was something that kind of the the imitation game kind of implies. And you commented that one of the bigger issues with the historical accuracy of the film was that the bomb was not a computer. No, like I say, it's an electromechanical device. Not even fundamentally a computer. You know, it's not even an early computer. It wasn't programmable. It wasn't digital. Colossus is a digital computer, and and that's the first one. In the original episode, I walked through the history of the Enigma and how it was based on a decryption device from Poland, and then they handed off to the British before the Germans attacked Poland. Um, And you did talk about this a little bit earlier in our discussion, but can you just give us kind of a bullet point or just kind of clarify the history of the Enigma machine for us? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're not wrong in what you've said there. You're fundamentally right. So basically, as I said earlier, we'd got this early Enigma machine, uh, the commercial one, and they, they worked out how that worked. You read some of the documentation and it's just, oh, well, well, yes, we've worked that out, as if it's nothing, you know. But we have to remember that this is that early machine before the additions are made to it, before the procedures are made more secure. The next part of the story in reality, because between the wars, GCNCS wasn't really interested in Germany. They didn't see Germany as the immediate threat. It was more Russia. And a lot of their code-breaking effort was against Russia and then against Italy. So the Italians are using Enigma machines during the war in Ethiopia. And the Spanish are given Enigma machines by the Germans during the Spanish Civil War. And we end up reading both of those. But again, these are, let's say, Enigma Mark II. So they make a number of changes to the machine. Then if we move on to the early 30s, the Poles, I think it was over a holiday weekend. This is the story, as I know it. The central post office in Warsaw, they contact whoever's in charge of uh, you know, the Secret Service, their version of the Secret Service or whatever, and say, We've had a package delivered here, and it's labelled for the German embassy. But obviously, we're not going to deliver this until Monday. Do you want to have a look at it? And they go and have a look at it, and it's an Enigma machine. And it's one of these more intricate Enigma machines. And over that weekend, the Poles basically copy the device. And the Poles were the first people to come to the decision that this needed mathematicians to break this machine. So... They had three main code breakers who worked on Enigma pre-war, and they broke it. And in breaking that machine, they then designed what they called the bomber. And it's nothing like the bomb that we see in, in Bletchley Park later and we see in the film. It's a square box. It's about two feet square and maybe four feet three, four feet high, and it has a number of drums sort of stacked up on top of each other on the top. But it kind of worked on the same principle, what it was doing, sort of testing wheel settings. That worked up until the mid-30s, at which point the Germans bring in the plug board. And once the plug board was brought in, it meant the poles could no longer break that the Enigma machine as it now was. What the poles do, which is 
absolutely vital to what happens at Bletchley Park later is from March 1939, basically up till September the 1st, Hitler is ramping up his attacks on Poland and what he wants from Poland. Everybody knows there's going to be a war. He's done the same the year before about Czechoslovakia. He's done the same previously with Austria. He's done the same with the the Ruhr. Finally, people are realising, do you know what? He's going to do this, and he will carry on doing it. The Poles know they're going to be attacked. So in July 1939, the Poles invite members of the French code-breaking bureau and three members of GCNCS to come and have a meeting in a forest just outside Warsaw. It's called the Piri Forest. And at that meeting, they gave both the French and the British everything they knew about Enigma. They gave them copies of the Enigma machine that they'd built, and they gave them every piece of knowledge they had about it. The really weird thing about this is, to get to Germany, the British team travelled by train. So we have in our museum, we have Commander Denniston, who was the first commander of GCNCS, and he was up till mid-war. We have his passport, and on his passport, with a German eagle and the swastika on it, are his visa stamps for travelling through Germany in July 1939. And in his suitcases were all the information we had to help us start breaking the Enigma. Travelling right through Germany. (laughs) Wow. Yes. And it didn't finish there because once Poland's invaded, the Polish code-breaking team managed to get out and they get to France. And they're working with the French directly in December 1939. The best way we can describe it is we couldn't break into the current version of Enigma the Poles couldn't break into the current version of Enigma. The Poles had had more success than we had with previous versions. The fundamental things that they'd learnt from doing that, which they told us, and told Dilly Knox especially, meant that we then made this next leap. And it's thought that that probably saved Bletchley Park at least six months' work, which, if you think at that period of time, means that by... Dunkirk and the Battle of Britain, we're beginning to start regularly reading some of the keys, and Air Force keys especially. And that's so important, you know, to be able to read Luftwaffe's keys during the Battle of Britain. But we know that Alan Turing goes to Paris in December 1939, because they're having a few problems. And at that meeting in Paris with the Polish codebreakers, whatever they they tell him and whatever they sort out for him enables him to come back and then in January 1940 we make our first break into Enigma at Bletchley Park. Going back to the original episode, there's a part where I mentioned that the Enigma had to be broken more than once. And while that's true, you commented that the true history is a little bit more complicated than that. Can you try to unravel that a little bit more for us? Yes, so there's not one Enigma key to be broken every day. At the height of the war, the German state has what we'd call now a network, but actually called keys. So each part of the German state, be it the army, air force, navy, Abwehr, foreign office, police, everyone had their own sets of keys. And at the height of the war, there's 60 of those. There's about 60 that need to be broken. And they change every day. They change every night at midnight. And Bletchley... One of their biggest issues is they never have enough staff to do everything. 
I mean, for a start, they don't have enough Y-service personnel, actually wireless operators, listening for that Morse code and writing it down. There's not enough of them to be able to do all of that. So for a start, you've cut down what you're selecting. So you have to go, right, okay, we know this certain unit broadcasts in a certain frequency, and that's important to us at the moment. So let's concentrate on that. So they're breaking only probably 20 to 25 keys a day. And then they're not reading all of the traffic from each of those keys either. They're only reading a certain percentage of it because obviously we've not captured what we haven't captured in the first place. We can't read. Right. Right. Makes sense. Something else that requires a little bit more clarification from the original episode is the point where I was talking about Turing going to see Winston Churchill about funding and the whole action this day memo that we see in the movie. The movie mentioned the cost of the machine was 100,000 pounds, and I had said that that was correct, but that's not really correct. Uh, What was the cost of the machine itself? And you kind of give us some more details about the Action This Day memo that we see in the movie and the funding behind it. Yeah. So I got David to double-check this, our historian to double-check this. They had an ongoing budget for the bomb machines, and that was where the 100,000 comes from. So by the end of the war, they averaged out the cost and each one cost 60000 as an average, which in comparison is about the same price as a Sherman tank. That's a decent price for a machine. Yeah, so I think that's a good comparison, really. I mean, we built around 200. Once we had started sharing intelligence with yourselves, America built loads of bombs. You had your own bomb machine, slightly different design. Turing went over to America and spent a good year or so in America helping them with it. And they slightly redesigned it. If you see a picture of an American bomb and a British bomb, you can tell, yes, they are the same machine. But you know what? The the American ones actually look a bit better. (laughs) I didn't say that. (laughs) It's all about functionality. That's all that really matters at the end of the day. Oh, and actually in this day, wasn't there? That is the... I think the biggest problem with the film, there's an entire subplot, and I know why it's there, where they build the character of Commander Denniston as being the foil for Turing. You have to have, you know, your hero has to have something, someone that he fights against, doesn't he? In this case, it couldn't be further from the truth. Commander Denniston, you just have to read the documentation. We, we've literally this month just done an, an episode on as we record this, it's the 80th anniversary of the start of World War II. So we've done an episode about the early days of Bletchley Park, and especially about the, the recruitment and the actual physicality of people turning up. And in the early weeks, Denniston is a very, very, very polite man. But even in these memos that he's sending, so he sends, in the film, Mark Strong plays the character of Menzies, and there's a letter that he sends Menzies in mid-September 1939, and it's, it's very much of its day. You know, it's very, very polite. But his main complaints about the conditions for his staff and the fact that, you know, some of them are in one hut here, some are, have been put in a school down the road. You know, while we've had quite fine days in September and the walking has not been bad, I can imagine this will be awful during the winter. You know, and he's worrying about how his staff are going to have to walk out in the snow in the rain in the winter and, and, you know, how they're all cramped in one office and they need room to think. Deniston was really concerned about his staff. 
the way he is portrayed in the film as, you know, his shock at Alan saying, oh, no, I'll be able to break that, him saying it won't be broken. Deniston knew it would be broken. You know, that's why he just, at that point, he spent something like six, seven, eight years starting this recruitment for mathematicians at this point because he knows he's going to break that machine and he knows who he needs to break it. And no one is in that building without him knowing that they're going to help break that machine. So that, I mean, that's the background to that whole letter part. So it's kind of that, that part of it is built on a myth. The letter exists. So Winston Churchill visited Bletchley once during World War II, and this was in late 1941. And it was just a, he, he turned up and he just sort of went and saw the heads of the huts. In fact, only last month I interviewed a lady. I never thought this would happen. I interviewed a lady who worked in Hut 8 with Alan, uh, just worked with Alan for about a month before he went to America. But she was there on the day Churchill visited. So in the film, we see Hugh Alexander. Um, by that point, Hugh Alexander takes over from Alan as head of Hut 8. The whole struggle between Hugh and Alan is completely made up. So Churchill just basically was turning up to say, oh, well done, everyone, you know, and spent the morning there and went round and saw the heads of the huts and then stands on a stone outside the mansion and, and gives an exaltation as. Arthur Bonsall told me when I interviewed him. What did Churchill say? Oh, he just sort of, oh, well done, carry on with the good work. And off he went. In the weeks after that, Gordon Welshman decides, he kind of realised that Bletchley was going to have to be a factory. It wasn't going to be this cottage industry. It was going to be this co-breaking factory. And later in the war, Gordon Welshman kind of takes over the machine side of things. So he decides we need more money and we need more help with this. We need more staff. So the letter, although signed by Turing, it's signed by Turing, Welshman, Alexander, and the chap who's never mentioned in the film, Stuart Milner Barry. It's just a letter basically thanking him for his visit. And then well, let's tag something on the end of it. So it starts with, some weeks ago you paid us the honour of a visit, and we believe that you regard our work as important. You will have seen that thanks largely to the energy and foresight of Commander Travis, he's taken over from... Deniston at this point. We've been well supplied with the bombs for breaking the German enigma. We think, however, that you ought to know that this work is being held up and in some cases is not being done at all, principally because we cannot get sufficient staff to deal with it. And it then just gets really quite boring and they talk about a bunch of wrens they need to take on and, and clerical staff and, and this sort of thing. And then um, because he's the youngest, Stuart Milner Barry is given the job of going down to London and hand-delivering the letter to Number 10 Downing Street. And then the rest of it is true. So that, you know, whenever he reads the letter, Churchill then says to his mate, right, action this day, give them everything they require and let me know that it's been done. Yeah, it sounds like the movie changed a few things there then. Yeah, but I can see why they did it. it again, it's, it's to help with the storytelling in a more simplified way because you've only got 90 minutes to tell a story that is six years in making, isn't it? That's true. The next point to clarify from the original episode has to do with the different Enigma machines in use by the Germans. In the episode, I mentioned the British were able to crack the Enigma machines used by the German Army and Air Force first because they used three rotors. But then I mentioned the German Navy used four rotors, which made it more difficult to crack. Can you give us a little bit more clarification around the different Enigma machines? There were different machines used by different branches of the military, correct? 
till later in the war, they all use a three rotor machine. So it's only 1942 that the Navy bring in the M4 machine, the four rotor machine. What is different is the procedures around the security for the Enigma. So the German Navy was always more security conscious. Uh, their procedures were more set in stone. Anything that kind of relies on human input, you've got a point of error there. So after they've gone through the setup each day, one of the things they're asked to do is select these random letters to send as their first part of the message to the other end. And they're supposed to think of a random set of letters, and humans aren't good at random. So a lot of the ladies I've spoken to, a lot of the veterans, speak about how many German swear words they got to learn. <laughs> because they would use a German swear word. You know, it was, and it, it's, it's things like that. So, you know, there's a lot of myth around us having to have an Enigma machine physically to break the code. Once you know how the machine works, you don't need the machine. What's really handy is having those code books. It's having those books with the daily settings in. They knew these as pinches. So they'd go and they'd pinch something. So they were looking to capture U boats, things like that. I was lucky enough a couple of years ago to interview a guy called Arnold Hargreaves, who actually was on a boarding party, who boarded the U-110. They'd brought the U-boat to the surface. The captain had set the scuttling charges and the German crew dive off the boat. They then realised the charges haven't gone off, uh, at which point we get HMS Bulldog, the ship they were on, between the German sailors and the U-boat. So they can't, at this point, see what's going on on the other side of the ship because we can't let them know that we're going to board it. And the boarding party sail a little rowboat over and they're basically told anything that isn't nailed down, put in a bag. And they came back and they just had canvas sacks full of everything. They put the German prisoners away in another part of the ship and the officers came along and they emptied all these canvas sacks on the deck. And the officers went through and said, right, we're having that, we'll have that, we'll have that. Right, crew, help yourselves to the rest. They had everything, false teeth. Arnold had one of the officers' caps. He had a dagger, and he had a signalling lamp. But they all just helped themselves. What was taken by the officers was the Enigma machine, but more importantly, the code books. And then they would be rushed back to Britain, and then they'd be down, you know, a courier would, motorcycle rider would bring those down to Bletchley, and then there'd be an excitement at Bletchley. The, the lady I spoke about earlier who worked with um, Hugh Alexander, she talks about, you know, pinches arriving. She wasn't directly involved with it. She wasn't allowed to see them because they were taken off to a room at the end of the hut. But, you know, everyone would be, oh, oh right. You know, because they knew that they'd have the next month, they wouldn't have any problems for the next month. They could just literally go, right, we'll set up our Typex machine like this, and they're reading it direct. Huh. Just have the answers right there. It's the answer key. <laughs> yeah, you know, someone's just giving you the key to the password. So it's just giving you someone's password file, you know. Basically, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you talked about this briefly earlier, but in the original episode, I mentioned that Alan Turing traveled to the United States soon after the U.S. joined World War II in December of 1941, but the cooperation actually started before that, didn't it? Yes, yes. It's um, in February 1941, four members of the American intelligence service, shall we say, sailed over to Britain. They brought with them what you had built. So America's biggest code-breaking work was obviously done against the Japanese. 
So you'd kind of built a machine to break the purple code, purple machine that the Japanese used, which is another encryption device. And you brought your version of that for us to have. It was so big they couldn't fit it on a train and it had to be brought down by ship. So as they sailed down the east coast of Britain in the middle of February, which isn't good weather in the North Sea, they're also attacked by German planes. So they kind of got a bit of a rude awakening to World War II, these four Americans. And they turn up at Bletchley at about 10 o'clock at night and they're given a glass of sherry in Commander Denison's office. And that is the actual point that the special relationship between our two nations begins because that's the first sharing of intelligence because we basically tell you everything we know about Enigma at that point. And that's when it starts. And during the war, there were two groups of Americans who were working at Bletchley Park. It was, a, I think... Exactly, I think it was between four or 500 Americans working at Bletchley Park during World War II. Oh, wow. Were there people from Bletchley Park that went to the U.S. then in kind of the opposite way? Or? There were a few, um, not as many. Alan goes, as you said in your original episode, you're right about that, Alan goes to America. He initially helped with the design of the American bombs. And then I think you said about him working on a, a speech encryption device, didn't you? Um, which is right, again. One of the funniest sides is that we believe the office he was working in at one period in New York was overlooking Radio City. So the Radio City dancers are the Rockettes, aren't they? So there's another myth that the machine that the British design after Typex is called Rockex, and then that's where this name comes from. But I think we'll take that with a large pinch of salt, I think. <laughs> yeah, Alan works in America for, I think, I think over a year on different projects um, and then comes back to Britain, I believe, in 43, I think. Okay. Now, something else I said in the original episode was around the secrecy of Bletchley Park after World War II. And I mentioned a book called The Ultra Secret that was published by an officer of the Royal Air Force that started turning the attention to what went on there. But again, the truth is a little more complex than that. Can you uh, clarify that a little bit for us? As far as everyone who, who served at Bletchley Park was concerned, the day they leave Bletchley Park, they're convinced that this will never be, no one will ever know what they've done. Every person who arrives at Bletchley Park, the first thing they do is sign the Official Secrets Act. In the late 1960s, the guy who'd been the head of the French Code Barricade Bureau, Bertrand, publishes a book and in that book, he talks about Enigma being broken. And that's really the first time it's done. There, I believe some of the polls had written something about, had had something published around the same time. But of course, because they're behind the Iron Curtain, no one knows about that until the late 1990s. But um, it was kind of, a with people in the know, you know, journalists and the such, people knew there was something about some code-breaking that was done during World War II. But then in 74, the British government decided, right, we're going to release stuff about it. Now, whether that was because it no longer mattered, you know, we know that some countries were carrying on using Enigma post-World War II for a while. For example, the East German police were using it. Now, whether by then we knew that no one else was using it, so it didn't matter, we'll never know why it was released. But they decided to release it. Now, whether Winterbottom's book was kind of semi-official, whether that was the government's way of going, we'll let him write that book and we'll work with him and it'll be done. We don't know. He did have quite a senior position during the war at Bletchley Park. So he was an Air Force liaison officer. So he was kind of the link between 
the intelligence being produced at Bletchley and what is told to the Air Force and what information is passed on to them. So we did kind of know a fair bit. But also, I would probably say that just about 99% of the myths that are built up around Bletchley Park can be pinpointed back to that book being released. Probably the very biggest, most people would know, is in that book, Winterbottom says that before Coventry is bombed, and Coventry's a city in the Midlands in Britain, and it was bombed on the 1st of November 1940, and there was a huge loss of life, and, and the city centre was absolutely destroyed. In the book, Winterbottom says that Enigma had been broken, and they knew it was Coventry, but so to safeguard the secret of Enigma being broken, Winston Churchill decides not to warn anyone. And it's completely untrue. At that point, they couldn't guarantee breaking Enigma every day, for a start. And also, there was never a message that said, tonight we bomb Coventry. The bigger reason that Coventry was bombed, because by this stage, the Germans from quite early stage have been using a system called Knickerbein, which is a beam, which they broadcast from Germany, two beams. And it's kind of like a directional aid for the bombers. And they fly along the beam. And where the two beams intersect is where they drop the bombs. We'd discovered this, and British scientists had worked out a way they could... It wasn't jamming, but because it, ba- it was based on something which was a, it was like a blind lang- landing device that was commercially available. You know, airlines use this. And as you flew into an airport in bad weather... One side sent out dots and the other side sent out dashes. But in the middle, you just got a constant tone because where the dashes weren't, the dots filled in. So when you were on this tone, you knew that was the, the right line. And it was based on that originally. And we found that we could bend the beam because what they could do is add extra dots or extra dashes. I don't know which one it was. And that would put the Germans slightly off target. But on the day of Coventry being bombed, the nearest they could get it to was it was going to be one of four places that was going to be bombed. And that wasn't through Enigma. That was actually through the people working on the beam stuff. And I interviewed Sir Arthur Bunsell, who later in the 1970s actually became the head of GCHQ. And he was working in the, the Air Force section for Bletchley Park when Coventry was bombed. And he said the most we could say is there were hints but no more than that. What they were working on, you know, like I say, there wasn't a message that said Coventry's going to be bombed tonight. I think that's the biggest problem that Winterbottom's book gave Bletchley, which still, the story comes up nearly every November, you know, some 74 years later now. Sorry, 79 years later now. It still comes up every year. <laughs> well, I mean, if that was one of the first things that came out about it, then people might just assume that, okay, this is the original source, and so it must be fact. One veteran I interviewed about Winterbottom's book, because one of the questions quite often asked is, you know, when the book came out, what do you think? And one lady I interviewed literally turned around to me and went, he should have been hung. Oh, wow. So just not, didn't stop. Just She, was, she thought he was a traitor. Not a, not a fan. Oh. <laughs> well, 
going back to the original episode, the final point there was uh, when I mentioned Winston Churchill's credit of Turing as having the single biggest contribution to Allied victory in the war against Nazi Germany. Uh, but that's not necessarily true, is it? We don't know where that's come from at all. We don't know where that quote's come from at all. We, we can't find it. Also, the, the, there's quite a famous one about Churchill saying that Bletchley Park were his golden geese that never cackled. We're struggling to find that as well. Like I said before, when Bletchley first started being known and the original trust set up the museum, there were still a lot of these myths out there and the stories had been slightly embellished um, to make it more interesting. But what we try to do now, you know, and as I've done with this, you know, I've made sure that everything you've wanted to know, I've gone to our historian just to double check if I don't know it. And even stuff I'm absolutely positive about, which it turns out one thing I wasn't, I was wrong. But that's what we want to do now. We don't ever want anyone to come back to us and say, you're wrong about that. And we get it. We, we do episodes of the podcast and we have people say, oh, I think you'll find that blah, 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 blah. And David ends up saying, no, I'll direct you at this document that's held in the National Archive where it says this. And we want to be 100% accurate about everything we say about Bletchley Park. Because it's important. The museum's role and its core role is to tell the story of the people who served at Bletchley Park between 1939 and 1945. And if we don't tell the truth, we're doing those people a disservice. Makes sense. There was one question I had that about the, the movie I, w I wanted to ask real quick. And that is a line where the movie mentions that Breaking Enigma shortened the war by at least two years and saved over 14 million lives. I have no idea how you would come up with numbers like that. <laughs> but I'm just curious, is there any truth to that? I can see how this has happened. So what happens in July 1945, Eisenhower writes to Menzies, and this letter, our previous chairman of the trust was Sir John Scarlett, who was the head of MI6 for a period. And while he was in office, behind his desk, he had the copy of this letter. So that's when we found out about it only a few years ago. And we actually had it on display at Bletchley for a few years. In the letter, Eisenhower says, and I'll quote this, the intelligence which has emanated from you before and during this campaign has been of priceless value to me. It has simplified my task as a commander enormously. It has saved thousands of British and American lives and in no small way has contributed to the speed with which the enemy was routed and eventually forced to surrender. Now, we think it's come out of some post... Winsbottom's book basically broke the, the flood banks and lots of memoirs came out. Now, with the way Bletchley was organised, very compartmentalised, you, you would have to have been very, very senior to have known the whole story. So a lot of the people who are telling the stories post-war, one, they're doing it from 40 years' memory, and two, they're doing it from 40 years' memory of not knowing the whole story. So that has to be taken into account first. Some of those original memoirs, in at least one, someone decides that they shorten the war by two years. Another one decides they shorten the war by one year. You know, they all kind of, you know, when they're obviously pitching to their publishers, you know, well, what's, what's this, this? Well, it's very secret. Well, what did it do? Oh, you know, you've got to have a 
headline, haven't you? It's basically come from that. It's come from the knowledge that Eisenhower has in that kind of alluded to the war being shortened and the saving of lives. And then I think people have subsequently said, well, okay, then, if Bletchley Park saved, shortened the war by two years and we say on average there was 10 million people dying a year during the war, oh, that means they saved 20 million lives. And there's no way of saying how long Bletchley Park did shorten the war. It, it helped fundamentally, but we, we would never be able to say how much it shortened the war by. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's a what if, you never know. We don't know. We will never know. Well, thank you so much for coming on to chat about the imitation game. Not only, I've also taking the time to fact check that original episode. It's going above and beyond to help tell the true story. I know there's a lot we covered, but there's so much more that we couldn't cover in a single episode. And so that leads us right into your podcast, the official Bletchley Park podcast. Can you share a little bit more about that and where people can find it? Well, you can find it everywhere. So all you need to do is search for Bletchley Park podcast, wherever people listen to their podcasts, basically. So we've been running for just over seven years now. I first became involved with with Bletchley because I was actually involved with the, the Alan Turing Committee. So when... It was coming up to Alan's centenary, which was, was 2012. From 2010 onwards, we were organising different events around the country and, and building up for 2012, basically. And as those events became more regular to, in 2012, you know, a lot of them was based, were based at Bletchley Park for obvious reasons. So I was there a lot, and I just fell in love with the place. I'd been a few years before once, and it was a nice museum, but it was quite kitschy. Uh, it was very amateurish. But that was because the trust had no money. You know, the people who were running it, just no money whatsoever. They were literally having meetings on, you know, a Monday morning to see if they'd be open the next week. You know, that, that things were so difficult. The trust were very lucky in gaining a grant from the National Lottery. It means that you, when you got one of these heritage lottery grants, you have to match the funding as well. So they, they did an awful lot of fundraising. But that has just transformed the place that you wouldn't believe it was the same place. It's now a museum of international renown. It's, you know, a, a world heritage site, really. And just so professional, you know, to the extent that, you know, like we say, you know, we want to be every single written word, every piece of video, every piece of audio that's officially connected to Bletchley Park, we want to make sure is right. We don't ever want anyone to say to us, you are wrong about that. Things do come out. You know, some of these things that we've spoken about today, if we'd spoken about this five years ago, we wouldn't have known this. More things are discovered in the archives. Because when, you know, when people say, oh, you know, the National Archives have released a whole tranche of new documents, someone has to go through that stuff. And there might be 45,000 pages of documents. And there might be one page that has some really fundamental thing we don't know. But someone's still got to read that page to get to it. Someone's got to go through it all just to find that one page. Yeah, wow. I say this all the time. I learn something new every time I go. You know, I'm at Bletchley a number of times every month. It's only sort of 20 minutes down the road from where I live. And um, every time there's something new. Where we record is actually in David, the historian's office, when we do our documentaries. 
and they work in the same section as the archive. And, and you just walk through the archive and just go, what's laying around that's being digitised at the moment? You know, And it's, you learn something every single time. It's amazing. And I just love doing the podcast. It's nice, especially to be able to interview the veterans and to allow these people, after so long, to be able to tell their stories. You know, you try and explain to them what a podcast is and it's like a radio show on the internet. And, oh, right, okay. And you tell them it's being listened to all around the world by tens of thousands of people. Really? Oh, oh okay. And then they just, they buck up because in a lot of cases, no one's ever bothered asking them. I would safely say, and it's really strange, I've never heard one Bletchley Park veteran brag about what they did. They all say at some point in one way or another, oh, what I did wasn't important because they were just this tiny cog. And you have to say to them, no, it was. It was important. And that even goes for, example, the lady I mentioned earlier that worked in the hut with Turing. As the conversation went on and she's describing what she's doing, I'm realising she wasn't a member of clerical staff. She was fundamentally a code breaker. So this isn't just me saying to a lady who thought she had a boring typing job, no, you did do something important. This is someone who even as an actual codebreaker thought she didn't do anything important. And to explain to these people, I mean, that lady, she'd come all the way from Tasmania for our reunion. We have an annual reunion for the veterans. And her two sons were with her. And one of her sons was your quintessential Aussie, rugby-playing, big bloke, muscly bloke. And I turned around partway through the interview, and I like to try and involve the family, if they're there, to ask him how he felt about this. And he couldn't speak. He had tears just streaming down his face because his mum had never told him this. And you can't buy that. You know, the the pride that they've now got in their mum and the fact that she's been able to tell her story, you know, that, that to me is just... That makes all of this worthwhile. Thanks again so much for listening to Based on a True Story. And thank you to Mark again for taking the time to fact check this original episode and give us some even more insights into the true story behind the imitation game. Now, if you want to learn even more, get a much more in-depth peek at what it was like at Bletchley Park during the events that we saw in The Imitation Game, of course, as I mentioned before, you can go check out number 147, episode number 147 of Based on a True Story, to hear my full interview with Mark. But go subscribe to the official Bletchley Park podcast. That's the podcast that Mark produces. Go hit subscribe on that to get a much better look at what it was like at Bletchley Park. Now, if you're driving or can't search for it now, don't worry, you can find all those links over on the show's home on the web at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. 